0: Coming to you from Classic City,
2: the capital of the
0: Bulldog Nation. It's time for another edition of the podcast designed for the most die hard Georgia fans in the country. Here are your hosts, Tyler and Charlie. What's up, guys? Welcome back to another edition of the Glory UGA podcast. I'm Tyler, and we are back on our regular offseason schedule. Which means I am joined today by my coach, Charlie, for another Monday Mailbag edition of the Glory UGA podcast.
1: Can I make a request today?
0: You are the host of the show, so yeah, sure. What's up?
1: Can we open the show with Tennis Talk? Because some of you may not have caught this. We have a new SEC championship.
0: In the trophy case? Yes. Yes, of course you are referring to the Women's Tennis yes, team. Georgia Women's Tennis team and I think that's an awesome idea. I'll, I'll give it to you. Yeah, I know we usually save tennis talk for later in these Monday episodes, but I am 100% down with flipping that this week because you're right, Charlie. These girls deserve some serious love from the Bulldog Nation. Let me I mean, let's just start by, by doing this. Let me tick off just some of the accomplishments of this team right off the top of my head. So they are now 20-1 this season. I think that's right, right? 20-1 on the season? 20-1. They've
1: only lost to North Carolina. To North Carolina, Carolina
0: in the third set tiebreak in the decisive match. So it was right there without one of our top singles players. So now 20-1 the season with, yes, that only loss coming to number one, North Carolina. Uh, an undefeated SEC regular season, outscoring our SEC opponents 52-5. to five. We also... Put up a 12 to nothing sweep en route to the SEC tournament titles. Actually, Charlie, correct me if I'm wrong here. I think this is right. It's the first conference championship sweep for the women's tennis team. So regular season and conference title or co- tournament title since 1994. Does that sound right? Sounds right. And I think 94 is the last time that we, obviously it was the last time that we won both the regular season and the tournament title. It's the last time that we won the regular season, the tournament title, and the NCAA tournament title. So we'll see if this team can do it. They've got what it takes, but there are uh, quite a few tough teams that we're going to have to get through. But this team certainly has a chance. And I really hope some of you guys got to catch the championship match on SEC Network on Friday. Don't get a lot of tennis matches on TV. So it's great to get this tournament final on there. The doubles point was really intense this time around, but we just rolled in singles. Charlie, I know you were upset about the scheduling of the, tour- of the tournament this year, the fact that it was Monday, or, well, yeah, it, was, it wasn't, it was like, Monday through Friday, right? Yeah. Which is, it's frustrating. I guess they're doing it because they were trying to discourage people from coming?
1: I guess, but it's an outside event, but that's a whole nother issue. Well, I mean,
0: it's frustrating. It's like, you look at the ACC tournament this weekend, the Big 12 tournament this weekend, the Pac-12 tournament this weekend, they were all Friday, Saturday, Sunday.
1: Yeah, you wouldn't think the SEC would be shy. Yeah, of, of all
0: conferences, we're the one that said, okay, you know, we're going to have our teams, we're going to have Georgia play Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. We played like 10 o'clock in the morning each time. So basically no fans could come. And I, and I guess, I, I know it's not a, a sport a lot of people travel to, but I would have been there. You would have been there,
1: right?
0: Yep. 100% would have been there. So it was that was certainly frustrating, but at least we got, I guess we got to watch that championship match and we were watching with the uh, the internet broadcast of it the the first couple matches. So it was great to have that there.
1: It was really disappointing because when you were upset about this. I was at work, so I was gonna watch it during my lunch and I pulled it up and earlier in the week you could click the link to watch it on the website where you can click on which court you want to watch. Watch
0: individual matches at your leisure.
1: Right. So you can flip back and forth. Well I pulled it up on Friday and you could only watch it on the SEC network which was super annoying because they pretty much only showed court one whenever I could watch it. But so you, I've been watching it all weekend. Yeah at my
0: what leisure. you've been just re-watching it like yeah. I do football games? Yes well I round of applause for you Charlie That's that's fantastic. I have not done that. so you get the number one Georgia Women's Tennis fan trophy today. Thank you. I, I love them but I mean that's that's a level of dedication that I have I have not quite conquered yet. Yeah, it is, I get what you're saying, but aren't you being kind of greedy here? We always complain about how there's never enough SEC tennis on TV. Like, No,
1: I'm glad it was on TV, but like they could have shown other courts more. They pretty much stayed on Court 1 the whole time. Which, yes, Court 1 typically has the best players, but that doesn't mean it's going to be the most entertaining match.
0: But it's just like they go for names. yes. It's like the team, when they pick the SEC game of the week or like when CBS or whoever, ABC is picking their games of the week in football, a lot of times you kind of scratch your head at the choice they make it's like, oh yeah, they picked Alabama because Alabama is the name that draws more eyes. Right. I guess it's the same idea. But I get what you're saying. It is frustrating when you want to watch Elena dominate down on core on six. Or you want to watch Leah Ma.
1: I did want to watch Leah. That's Leo, your girl. And I still have not gotten to the point she's re-watching your, where I can watch it.
0: She's become your favorite player?
1: Maybe. Yeah. I like her.
0: She's awesome. I think she might have the high. I think we said this before. I think she might have the highest ceiling of all the players on the I mean, Cat is right now the best player because she's just a ferocious competitor and she's so talented on in her own right. But Leah, when she wants to compete, like when she's dialed in,
1: she just that girl can play.
0: She she's up and down. She's got to keep that intensity more consistently. But when she's when she's out in, she is really really good. Well, I'm sorry that frustrated you, but I, hey, we won, right? So we did. Whether or not we got to go to it, whether or not Charlie was frustrated with the format. What an accomplishment, an awesome accomplishment for the women's tennis team. Uh, got through this out there as well. Junior Morgan Coppock won the tournament MVP, which you probably wouldn't have thought coming into the tournament, right, Charlie?
1: Yeah.
0: I mean, you would think Kat, maybe Leah Ma, Meg, who's always, you know, winning, like, just wins yeah. by definition. That's what Meg does. She just wins.
1: But, yeah, I don't think they showed Morgan Kopik, Carly at all.
0: Not until she was about to clinch. Yeah. Not but just, she was yeah,
1: the MVP but of the, we, of we the didn't entire get to tournament. Yeah,
0: play. and she deserved it. I mean, I got – Morgan – has been quietly so good for us this year And it's been huge Because I, I, I know we didn't really have a full season last year But going back to 2019 We made that run to the NCAA Tournament Final We were the runners-up that year One of the key, we were good on every court, but one of the keys of that team, one of the best players on the team was Vivian Wolf on court four. Just like Meg was dominant on court six and never lost, Vivian really never lost on court four. But then she left, kind of went pro. Now she's somehow at UCLA. I don't know exactly what went on there. But Morgan had big shoes to fill stepping in for Vivian on court four. And I don't want to say she's become as dominant as Vivian was or different kind of players. But, man, she is rolling right now, and we are really strong in core four. We're basically strong in every single quarter. That's just the bottom line. But Morgan, she definitely deserves some serious props here. So if you look at her performance over the course of, of the tournament, so we played three matches. We got the first round by quarterfinals. She won her singles match 6-0, 6-0. Semifinals against Tennessee won 6-4, 6-2. And the uh, championship match against A&M won 6-2, 6-2. Got the clinch as well. Also went 2-0 in doubles. So no doubt Morgan Kopic. Flat out awesome tournament. She definitely deserved that there. So big shout out to her and the rest of the team for another unbelievable performance, which is kind of becoming routine for them.
1: It's not unbelievable. They do it every week.
0: It's not unbelievable. I guess, okay. I guess you're right. So if it's okay, if it's not unbelievable, they are making it routine. Fair. So what's another adjective? What's a better adjective to use besides unbelievable? Amazing. They are amazing. They're better than amazing.
1: Well, I mean, I know. See, to be yeah.
0: unbelievable, just that, that's like a step above amazing. I know you're right. Technically, is it believable? Yeah, it's believable because this is what they do. They just win. All they do is win. Amazing, incredible. Mm-hmm. Is it incredible? Uh, uh, is that a step above amazing?
1: Fascinating. Well,
0: it's not fascinating because like fascinating.
1: we, I we I expect play this from like,
0: what like, if, if we expect this from, them, is it fascinating? It'd be fascinating if there was a team that was like the 11 seed that made the run.
1: Well,
0: yeah. I'll go with. I'll go with. I'll go with amazing. We'll go with your. Sorry,
1: person. you don't like my
0: adjective. No, no, they're. Good. I'm just like amazing is. It, that's amazing is always awesome. But I feel like there's got to be another word. Like we're just not smart people. I'm also tired. So one of our right listeners. Yeah, I know. You seem kind of. you seem kind of fried right now. It's okay. Yeah. It's okay. It's all right. Uh, but all right, Charlie. Do I? Well, before we do this, I don't want to ignore the guys. Um, the men's team. They got upset in the quarterfinals in a closely contested match against South Carolina. But they still should be in line to host a regional. Charlie, do you feel okay about their chances to host a regional still, even though they well, lost? Well, if it's
1: based on rankings, they should still host In a the regional.
0: past, it's always been the top 16 seeds host a regional. Yeah, is we went this
1: election on Tuesday?
0: It's next month. What May 3rd, whatever May 3rd is. Uh, is that a Monday? Oh,
1: next Monday. Yeah,
0: so it's, it's a, yeah about a week or so away from from today. But, yeah, typically it's been the top 16, but they've changed things with the format going into this year. So, I, I don't know. I, I still feel good about them hosting. Now, our seed won't be as good as it could have been. But, yeah, I mean, our guys, They're it's a really good team. They've been really hot lately. But we've kind of said before, like, they can beat – I think on their best day, they can beat anybody. They can also lose to teams they shouldn't lose to. And South Carolina is a good team. Don't they? they beat us early in the year when we weren't fully healthy. We put up a really good fight here. Really came down – I mean, I guess technically it was 4-2, but – Zink was about to, to close out his match on court on court two. So it really was, I, I would say it was like 4-3, basically. We were right there. But uh, hopefully they'll still be in line to host a regional, just be, probably be against some tougher competition. But, all right. Charlie, do I now have your permission to transition to the mail, mailbag questions? Can we go there? Yes, we can. All right. Let's do it. What do you got for me?
1: All right. Well, Clemson fans have really been talking a lot on social media after G-Day. And one of the things their fans are claiming is that their defensive line is better than ours so the first question is very simple paul asks will our week one game against clemson feature the two best defensive lines in the country this year and with that i'm going to add if uga and clemson potentially have the best two defensive lines in the country which one of those has the best defensive line
0: all right thanks paul this is an awesome question and charlie you are a hundred percent correct Really for the past two weeks or so, week and a half, however long it's been, since G-Day has come and gone, for whatever reason, Clemson fans have come out of the woodwork, going out of their way to talk trash about Georgia and do whatever they can to denigrate our football program and just remind us that we aren't even in the same universe as Clemson's football program and we stand absolutely no chance come September 4th, 2021. So there has been a ton, a ton of trash talking going on on social media if you guys have been paying attention. And I think I'm actually going to address this whole Georgia versus Clemson debate in more detail in a show later this week. I think that's kind of what I'm turning towards doing for our second episode of the week. But for today, let's just limit the conversation to the defensive line since that's specifically what Paul has asked about. Now, as to Paul's question, will that game week one against Clemson feature the two best defensive lines in the country this year? I think there's a strong chance the answer will be yes. I would put both defensive lines up there but they just go about it in different ways. So It, it depends on what you're talking about, Charlie. Like to, to your question, the second part that you threw in there, who has the better defensive line, I think it depends on what you are talking about. Are you talking about rush defense? Are you talking about disruption, tackles for loss, sacks, that kind of thing? If you're talking about rush defense, controlling line of scrimmage, eliminating explosive plays, those kind of things, our defensive line is about as good good as anyone out there. It has been for the last two years, and I believe it projects to be again next year, maybe even better next year, if that's even possible. But saying that, we don't. The fact is, we've talked about this many times on this show, we do not rush the passer as well as Clemson does on standard downs because it is not a priority for us. Do we want to be able to rush the passer? Sure, of course. Every defense coordinator in America wants to be able to get after the passer, but that is not our top priority. We just aren't as disruptive as a defensive front, and that is by design. And I do plan on doing a scheme theme month next month. I'm actually, well, I was gonna roll that out later this uh, this week to kind of explain that to you guys, but I'll kind of tease it here. Next month, obviously with spring practice out of the way, and there's not as much going on, maybe a little bit on the recruiting front to create some content for you guys. My plan is to do a scheme theme month where I'm just gonna kind of be breaking down different X and O type elements of college football next month. And I'm going to get you guys input. So if you have any ideas on what you want me to cover from a kind of a schematic standpoint, some different things that you're curious about, you want some more detail on, please feel free to let me know on Twitter at glory underscore UGA. You can also email those questions or those ideas to me at gloryugapodcast at gmail.com. And I will absolutely try to work that in as much as I can next month. But anyway, next month, I do plan on going in more detail with a lot of different scheme aspects of college football, and I will explain in more detail why we aren't as disruptive by design. It's one of the first episodes that we'll probably do next month. But anyway, I know that frustrates some Georgia fans, the fact that we aren't more disruptive and the fact that we don't put more of a premium on getting after the quarterback, creating negative plays, all those kind of things. So if you are in favor of disruption, tackles for loss, sacks, all of that, well, Clemson is much better at doing that than we are. Th- those are the facts because that is what their defense is schemed to do. And that is what their players up front are asked to do. And I do think that plays a big role in w- the perception of Clemson's defensive line and the idea among some talking heads out there in the national media that the Clemson defensive line is better than Georgia's defensive line or just one of the top defensive lines in the country. They're really good, but I, I sometimes think that they may not be quite as dominant as the national perception is because people look at stats, guys. We know how this works. We are a stat-driven sports culture because that's a way to tangibly measure something. It's easy to look at the stat book and say, okay, this team has this many sacks. This team has this many tackles for loss. And you can say, well, that demon's line is better than that demon's line because they have more sacks. They have more tackles for loss. That's an easy way to measure things. But that's a very simplistic way to look at it, because not every defense is built the same way, and Georgia's defensive line versus Clemson's defensive line is case in point. They're both really, really good defensive lines. They're just built in different ways, and they are designed to attack offenses in different ways. But let's take a little bit of a closer look at what our defensive front does well, and that's clearly stopping the run. We have been the number one rush defense for two years in a row, 2019 and 2020. Over the past two seasons, we have averaged giving up 73 yards a game over the past two years. We've also been number one in rush defense efficiency, yards per rush in 2020, and number two in yards per rush allowed in 2019. We've given up 2.3 yards per rush and 2.6 yards per rush respectively each of the past two seasons. On top of that, we just simply do not give up explosive run plays. We're number one in explosive run plays allowed uh, in both 2020 and 2019. Here's how much better we are than every other team in the country at limiting explosive running plays. So we were number one in the country last year in explosive runs allowed. We gave up 16 rushes of 10 plus yards. A&M came in number two in the same category and they gave up 29 rushes of 10 or more yards. And rushes of 20 or more yards. We only gave up three runs of 20 or more yards. Again, A&M was number two in the country in allowing runs of 20 plus yards. They gave up eight rushes of 20 plus yards. So we're basically twice as good as the next best rush defense in terms of limiting explosive plays. It's basically the same story in 2019 as well. And Clemson has been good. I'm not trying to say that Clemson has not been good against the run. They have been. They're really good relative to the rest of college football. They just haven't been Georgia good when it comes to stopping the run. They really haven't been all that close. They uh, were 15th in rush defense last year. They were 19th in 2019. Over the past two seasons, they've averaged, giving up 115 yards on the ground each game. They've been good in their rush defense efficiency. They were seventh last year, 13th in 2019, giving up on average a 3.17 yards per rush. So again, Clemson really good against the run relative to the rest of the college football world. They just haven't been as good as us and really they haven't been all that close. You also got to factor in this. Clemson has played, if you're asking me, a far weaker schedule in the ACC. I think that's almost undeniable, especially last year. And they have gotten gashed with the run when they play some of the better teams on their schedules. For example, last year in 2020, Notre Dame, yeah, they're a playoff team, really good. They gave up 5.2 yards per rush to Notre Dame. They gave up 5.8 yards per rush to Ohio State last year. 2019, Ohio State rushed for five yards per carry. LSU rushed for 5.6 yards per carry. And of course, I know some of you are sitting there thinking, well, like, obviously they're going to give up more yards rushing to the best teams on their schedule. Yes, that's true. Everyone usually gives up more yards to the better offenses, the better teams on their schedule. My point is simply that when Clemson actually has to play someone outside of the weak ACC, they don't look nearly as dominant on defense, particularly against the run. There is just a bigger gap between what they do against the -the run-of-the-mill teams on their schedule and the best teams they play than there is for us. For example, we have not given up more than 3.9 yards per rush in any one single game outside of the monsoon game against Kentucky at home back in 2019. In a game like that, I kind of just throw out stats because that's just a ridiculous environment to try to play a football game in. You're slipping and sliding every which way. But outside of that game, we have not given up more than 3.9 yards per rush in any one single game in more than two years now. The fact is we're just far more consistent against the run and we're doing it against better competition. Now the caveat there, if we're talking about defensive lines with this specific question that Paul brought up, the caveat there is that it's not just the defensive line that's responsible for our run game dominance the linebackers, the safeties, the cornerbacks, they are all involved in it as well, clearly. But I would contend that the defensive line is the centerpiece of that run game dominance. And most of the key pieces from last year's defensive front, 2019's defensive front, most of those key pieces are back with the exception of Aziz Ojolari and Malik Kerr, who are both really, really, really good players, awesome players. But the way that we recruit, the way that we rotate players in and out, it's not like we are having to rebuild entirely at those positions. We have extremely talented players behind Aziz, behind Malik, that have gotten plenty of experience and are ready to burst onto the scene themselves. So I think we've just been far more dominant as a run defense, and we've been far better up front against the run than Clemson has. Clemson's been really good, but again, not Georgia-level good. But that run game dominance, it does come with a price. We have been goodish against the pass. Like we, we are good rushing the past relative to most of college football, but we haven't been really close to dominant. We uh, last year were 30th nationally in standard down pass rush rate. Uh, we were 43rd nationally last year and 60th nationally in 2019 in tackles for loss. We just aren't as disruptive of a defense. And again, that's by design. Clemson, on the other hand, that's what they do. That's what their defense front excels at. They were second in TFLs in both 2020 and 2019. Last year, they were second nationally in standard down pass rush rate. And it's those numbers that create this perception that Clemson's defensive line is ferocious and cannot be stopped. And don't get me wrong, they are really, really good. I'm not trying to suggest that they are not good. They are very good. We need to be concerned about that defensive front, especially if we can't find answers at offensive tackle. But I'm not ready. I'm just not ready, like some people are to proclaim the Clemson defensive line as the best defensive front in America. They're really good, they're up there, but are they the best? I don't think that I would quite go there. And that brings us back to Paul's original question. Are these the two best defensive lines in America going into 2021? Obviously at this stage, sitting here in late April, that's entirely a projection right now because it's two teams with some awesome veteran players who you know what to expect from, guys like Jordan Davis, guys like Devontae Wyatt on our side, guys like KJ Henry, Xavier Thomas to a degree, Tyler Davis, if he's back healthy for Clemson, you have those veterans and you have some younger, less experienced guys that you're kind of like in wait and see mode to see what kind of jump they make. Guys like Brian Brissy for Clemson, who came in as the number one player overall in the country, the two four seven composite, a lot of hype, and he's one of the reasons why people throw them up there as one of the best teams in the lines in the country. You got you have guys like Miles Murphy, Brzee, those kind of guys, Xavier Thomas, all five-star recruits, but Brzee was, I mean, he was good for a freshman last year, but he wasn't a dominant player. Jalen Carter was better than Brzee was, according to Pro Football Focus's grades, and also if you just watch them play, I think Jalen Carter was better, even though he might not have played as much. Bursi, last last year, it was sub-70 in his overall grade on Pro Football Focus, only at a 57.5 run grade. Now, he did have an 81.2 pass rush grade, which goes to my point. They're just much better at rushing the passer than we are. They put more of an emphasis on that. Now, Miles Murphy was a flat-out beast for them last year. That guy was legit. I'm still upset that he got out of the state. But um, he put up an 85.2 overall grade in his freshman season, 92.5 run grade, which is kind of goes against the grain with the rest of that defensive front, but only a 67 pass grade. So he's kind of the inverse. He was better against the run than he was against the pass, which is kind of backwards for the rest of the of the Clemson defensive front. But anyway, when you're talking about young players like that, and some of our young guys, Jalen Carter, you got Nolan Smith taking on a bigger role, Adam Anderson hopefully taking on a bigger role this year, you're clearly talking about a projection. And that's not unusual. It's the offseason. That's what you do in the offseason. You make projections. But if you look at last year which has to factor into your projection towards 2021. Last year, I would say that Georgia's defensive front and Clemson's defensive front were among the best D-lines in the country, but I'm not sure they were the two best defensive fronts overall last year, because there were others that were rated higher if you get some of the advanced stats. You'll get Pitt, Utah, Notre Dame, Wisconsin, All of those defensive lines were really good too. And if you look at the advanced stats, you know their fan bases would absolutely make an argument for being somewhere in that top two. I think we were in that conversation right around top five. Same with Clemson. I think both teams, both defensive fronts were right in that conversation. But if the question is about projecting forward to this year based on that previous production and then also the talent, the pedigree, the new guys coming in, I really wouldn't put up too much of a fight if you said that these two defensive lines, Clemson's and Georgia's, will be the two best in the country in 2021. But again, as I I laid out earlier in this question, they're just built differently. Now, to Charlie's question of which one do I think is going to be better and potentially the best defensive line in America, Homer alert. Okay, let's put it out there. Homer alert here. Sure, whatever. But I would argue that it is our defense line. And hear me out. Here's why. Real quickly, number one, I think we just have far more depth than what Clemson has. Clemson does have those frontline guys, Brian Brisey, Miles Murphy, who was a stud as a true freshman. Xavier Thomas, if he can get healthy, Tyler Davis, if he comes back healthy, they've got some really good players up front. they got those frontline guys, but there's not as much depth. Clemson over the past couple of years, they have done a really good job of recruiting those top line guys. You get the quarterback, whether it's Trevor Lawrence or DJU, you get a top receiver here or there, you get a stud on the defensive line, but their classes haven't been just chock full of of elite players. The depth isn't there. If you look at the recruiting rankings and look at their classes as a whole, as opposed to just the big names in their classes, you will see there's not as much depth there. We have done a better job of stacking depth. On our defensive line, all right. You can look at guys like Jordan Davis, Devontae Wyatt, Jalen Carter, Travon Walker, we've got Julian Rochester hanging around, Adam Anderson, Nolan Smith, the Stackhouse, Zion Logan. The list goes on and on. We have more quality depth, more potential impact players on our defensive front than what Clemson has. Yes, they do have a couple of headliners and a and a group of former five stars, but they just don't have that depth that we do. And I would also argue another reason why I think that our defensive line will end up being better than Clemson's this year is that we have, I think we have more upside. Now, I know some of you would probably say, well, well, Tyler, look, you can't include Adam Anderson and Nolan Smith on the defensive line because those are outside linebackers. Those guys are linebackers. I I get where you're coming from there, but for the purposes of this argument, I'm going to, include them on the defensive line because both those guys, Adam Anderson and Nolan Smith, will play plenty of snaps with their hand in the dirt in a two-point stance. The fact is that we just play different schemes. Clemson plays a 4-3, we play a 3-4. So their edge rushers are like traditional 4-3 defensive ends. Our edge rushers are or outside linebackers that sometimes play in space, sometimes are standing up, sometimes their hands in the dirt. It just depends. So we play plenty of even man fronts with four down linemen where those guys have their hands in the dirt, two-point stance, rushing the passer like you would in your traditional 4-3 defense. So I'm going to include them in this conversation of our defensive line. But that's why I think we have a higher upside. Adam Anderson was the top-rated edge rusher in college football last year, according to Pro Football Focus, if you exclude snap minimums. The guy only played 130 snaps last year, which is clearly not enough. That's one of the issues I have with what we did defensive last year. I know we had a ton of studs last year on defense, but we needed to find a way to get him on the field more. And if we can do that this year, find a way to get him more snaps, all bets are off this defense could be absolutely unchained with a guy like Adam Anderson. And I'm very curious to see what happens with our disruption numbers, our TFL, our havoc rate, as they like to say, right? Our TFLs, our sack numbers, with Adam Anderson is able to get on the field more consistently and play a lot more snaps. And I also think Nolan Smith potentially has higher upside than Aziz Ojalary. Now, he was certainly not at Aziz's level last year, and who knows if he will be this year. But let's not forget that Nolan Smith is a former number one overall recruit in the 247 composite, just like Brian Brissy is. And I think Nolan has all the talent in the world. He just need the rep. He needs the reps, he needs the experience and being the guy this year without a Z's there, without having to be in his shadow, I think Nolan could absolutely explode on the scene. I also mentioned that Jalen Carter, as a true freshman last year, was a higher rated interior defense lineman than Brian Brisey was, who was also good, but he just wasn't as good as Jalen Carter, wasn't as consistent, in my opinion, as Jalen Carter, particularly against the run. And we look, we're probably not, our, our guys are not going to put up the individual numbers that Clemson's guys will, without, with the exception of maybe Adam Anderson, if we use him in, in different ways. But, what will be better is our team numbers. Our team numbers will be better. And as I said earlier, the defensive line is the centerpiece of that, which again, I will explain in far more detail in an episode next month. But I would argue that our defensive line, if I'm projecting forward to 2021, I would give our defensive front the slight edge, a slight nod over Clemson's as being the best defensive line in the country. And of course, we'll see how it all plays out. Right now, it's just a projection. But based off past production, based off of talent, upside, based off of our depth edge, I would argue that our defensive line is the best defensive line in the country heading into 2021.
2: You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. All right, next up, we have a couple of questions about
1: the offensive line and the aftermath of G Day. First, Sam asks, What do you think Broderick Jones needs to do to improve in order to get a crack at the starting rotation? Um, Sam says that he won't be a starter by the Clemson game, but eventually he would like to see him secure a starting spot. What's your take?
0: Yeah, great question, Sam. I would also love to see Broderick Jones secure a starting spot because as I said earlier this month, I believe he has tremendous upside. And if he gets himself to the point where he's ready to be a contributor and be a guy that coaches can trust – then I think that is best case scenario for us on the offensive line. Whether he's playing right tackle or left tackle, now he was playing more right tackle at G day. That doesn't mean that he cannot play left tackle. But in terms of what do I think he can improve on to get a crack at the at the starting rotation? I think really it's two things for Broderick. Number one, he's got to continue to get stronger. He had an injury before the season last year that set him back. Now he is back full speed, but he got a little bit behind from that standpoint getting that injury early on while he was a true freshman. So he has to continue to get bigger, stronger, all those things so that he can be more of a consistent force in the run game. The other thing that I saw, now this is a very small sample size. We didn't see really any of him in meaningful situations in 2020. So it's a very small sample size, take it for what it is. But at G-Day, there were times where he just didn't look like he was comfortable in terms of his knowledge of who he was supposed to be blocking. And that's okay at this point. He's still a young guy fighting for a starting spot, really competing for a starting spot for the first time in his career. He's young. He's going to continue to grow. He did not get all those reps last year. He's working a lot on the scout team during the season. So he wasn't really working with the ones and the twos and getting all those reps with our offense. He was running somebody else's offense. So it's going to take some time there, but he just needs to improve his understanding of what we're trying to do, his understanding of of what to do with stunts, twists, how to pass those off, those kind of things. So right now, if he went out there, let's say our first game was next week against Clemson, I don't know that I would trust him to know who to block on, every, on any given play. And that's tough when you face a very disruptive front, like Clemson, like we talked about earlier in the episode. When you face a defense like that, that does try to game things up front and they're very disruptive, that can create some very big problems for us offensively. So he just got, he has to get stronger, and he's got to improve his understanding of our offense and his knowledge in terms of who he's supposed to block, which is is not unusual. You can say that about almost any young offensive lineman, and that's what Broderick Jones is. He's a young offensive lineman. Yes, a young offensive lineman with a very high upside, but he's still young, extremely inexperienced, and it's going to take some time for things to click for him. But when it does, if it does, I think this guy is going to be a big-time player for us.
1: All right. Also, G wants to know what you think about Tress's performance. In his opinion, G says he looked really good compared to his bowl game performance. So what do you think?
0: Yeah, so obviously Xavier Truss is right in the thick of things with that offensive tackle competition, particularly at left tackle. He was out there with the first unit at G-Day, and I would agree, G, that I do think he looked better than he looked against Cincinnati. I will agree there. He looked more competent, more comfortable. Absolutely. I think that's a fair assessment but I still think Xavier Truss has a ways to go if he wants to lock down that starting left tackle spot. And at this point, I just still don't fully trust him as our starting left tackle. And I'm not saying that I can't get there. He can absolutely make me a believer. I want him to make me a believer. I need somebody to make me a believer at left tackle other than Jamari Sawyer, because I believe he would be a better fit for us at left guard. I want somebody desperately to step up and say, hey, Tyler, I got you. I need that to happen. But right now, I just don't trust that that's going to be Xavier trust. And I don't think it is right now. It it can be, he can continue to grow, but I still have some concerns with his athleticism, his footwork, all those kind of things. He has solid length, but not elite length. You mentioned the bowl game, I and mean, that's really the only like true full game that I have to go off of. I know that's a small sample size, and that's kind of unfair to judge them just solely off that. But that's just what we had to go off of. He got abused. I mean, flat out embarrassed in that game, and maybe that's to be expected. I mean, that Cincinnati defense up front. My um, Jay Sanders is a really, really good pass rusher for them, and that was a tough ask for somebody to come in there in their first real meaningful snaps, their me- first meaningful playing time, and you're going against one of the better pass rushers in the country, especially when he's kind of like your kryptonite. My Jay Sanders is a speed rusher, and that is the kind of guy that I think is going to give Xavier Trust problems probably throughout his career because he's just not as Quick footed as you would like your like ideal left tackle to be. I'm not saying he can't grow there and improve there. I think he can, but can he improve enough to be like a top line SEC left tackle, the kind of left tackle you expect to come from the University of Georgia? I just I'm not sure the answer is yes right now. I I, I have questions about his flexibility, his knee bend, ankle flexibility, all those things. I just have questions there. And part I will admit part of that a big part of that is because I just haven't seen that much of him. I have to throw that out there, but the limited sample size that I've seen from Xavier Truss leaves me wanting more. It does. Again, he can get there. Maybe, potentially. I hope he can. I hope he does. I hope he proves me wrong. I hope he can look back at this episode in a couple months and say, wow, Tyler, that was a really dumb thing to say. I would love that. And he did have some really good reps at GDA. That's what I said in the aftermath of GTA on a recap episode is that looking at Xavier Truss, I thought he had some really good reps, but he also had some really bad reps. He had some of the best reps of any of the tackles that we had in G day, but he also has some of the worst reps of the tackles that we had uh, at G day. Which that's that's kind of what concerns me. It's that inconsistency there. Because any one given play, you give a, a, a bad sack at the wrong time, and that can change a game. If you're playing in Jacksonville against Florida, it's for the SEC East. That can change the game against Clemson. You let guy come off the edge late in the fourth quarter, we're trying to go down there and score for a game-winning drive, and J.T. Daniels goes down, gets sacked. That could change the game. It could change our season. And so he's got to develop more consistency there. And again, that just goes back to why right now I just don't trust him. I hope that he changes my mind. I really do. But at this point, I just don't fully trust him yet.
1: Next up, I'm going to show my ignorance with this next question because the listener who sent this one in had a screen name that was written in Arabic?
0: Yeah, I saw that. That uh, I couldn't make that out either. I'll be yes. honest.
1: So I'm not that smart. So I'm just going to go with his Twitter handle, which is H6297. And I'm tired, so it's even hard to read letters <laughs> and numbers right
0: <laughs> At now. H6297. So please
1: yes. let me know how to pronounce your name, and I will correct it.
0: This guy is awesome. He's a, he's a long-time listener. I never know exactly what to call him, because he changes his name a lot. And this time it was in Arabic, and I, I'm with you. I just... I'm not, I'm not a smart man. Okay, well, know. we're going
1: to go with H6297, which was still very difficult for me to say. It says, should we settle down on the Arian Smith hype? He says that he has speed and it's great if he can hit it in stride because it brings in a great element to the pass game that defenses need to prepare for. But all we've seen is go routes says that we criticize Pickens for running the same routes out of one position, but hype up Arian Smith like he's an All-SEC player because of his speed. If it was such a major factor, Anthony Schwartz would have been an All-American. So what's your take?
0: You know, I think this is a very insightful question, and I do think you're right in that we might need to slow our roll a little bit on the Arian Smith hype, at least a little bit here. Now, personally, I am very high on his potential, and what I think has happened is I think a lot of Georgia fans, myself included, I'll certainly throw myself in there, I think we've just been so desperate for this type of wide receiver, kind of our, our own Jalen Waddle or Henry Ruggs, so to speak, after seeing how the game has changed and, and how guys that fit his physical prof- profile are just destroying defenses in the modern game. But I'll I just say it's really tough for me to fully evaluate where Arian is right now because the sample size is just so incredibly small. I mean, the guy only played a grand total of seven offensive snaps last year. And I think that might be why it seems that he only does one thing. He only runs the vertical route because that is, I mean, in reality, basically all we put him in to do late in the season. So you're totally right there because at that time, that was all he was really ready to do, given that he had previously missed most of the season and all those reps with a knee injury. So when you miss all that time, you miss all those reps as a true freshman, first time on campus, no spring practice, but you know he has that one thing that you just cannot teach with that speed. You just go ahead when he's healthy and he's cleared to play. You just put him in there to do that one thing that you know he can do. That doesn't mean he can't do other things. But I think at that moment in time, at the end of the season, when he was finally healthy and cleared to go, that was just all we trusted him to do at that point because he basically hadn't been practicing very much with the team. And then, yeah, we see him at G-Day, and he was out there running routes, and he ran a couple of vertical routes, got behind the defense, but he was also coming off the wrist injury, wasn't full go, missed some time because of the injury, certainly probably hampered his development to some degree. So I, I think you're right. Again, yes, that all we've really seen from him are those vertical routes, but I'm just not yet ready to say that's all he can do right now. That might be the case. That very well could be the case. But I just don't think we've seen enough of him to say that that is 100% the case right now. I just, like with the Pickens thing, I felt more comfortable coming into the offseason critiquing Pickens' game because... We had a year plus of game film on this guy, and we just don't have that on Arian right now. So it's, to me, it's just kind of hard to say definitively either way, where the hype is real, whether it's not real. We just, I, I, personally, I don't know right now. Maybe someone else knows, but personally, I don't know because I just haven't seen enough. We had seven snaps last, last year, and we had a, a G Day where, yeah, he was out there, but he was not full go. But for argument's sake, for argument's sake, let's just say that is the case that, All he can do is run that vertical route. That's all this guy can do for us right now. And even if that is all that he can consistently do at this point, I still think his presence can be a major factor for us because his speed and that ability to take the top off of a defense can absolutely put the fear of God into those opposing defenses and can certainly dictate coverages. And that's what we have to find a way to do, find a way to replace whether it's one guy or by committee with different skill sets in the absence of George Pickens. We've got to find a way to dictate coverages. And even if defense is schemed to take away his vertical ability, that's fine. Even if he's not the dude making the plays, because he's only running that one same route every time. Even if that, like, again, we don't know if that's the case, but if that is the case, even if he's not making the plays, that ability to take the top off the of defense, his presence, his skill set, that speed will open things up for our other wide receivers, guys like Jermaine Burton, guys like Kiaris Jackson, AD, Mitchell, D-Rob, all those different guys out there at receiver for us. So I do totally get where you're coming from and where this question comes from, because that really is all that we've seen him do, but we've just seen so little of him. I'm just not ready to say that's certainly definitively all that he can do. And even if it is, I still think he can certainly be a a contributor, can help this team out.
1: Next up, Jonathan is looking at the increasingly important transfer portal and asks, are you high on Kendrick from Clemson? And what are other names you think we should look out for on the wide receiver and defensive back front? And also, are you waiting for new names to come in the next month or so?
0: Yeah, thanks, Jonathan. This is another good question. This is a very relevant question because we're certainly still going to be looking at the transfer portal. I know we got Tyke Smith. That's great. That gives us a little bit of a, of a comfort level there, a little bit of a cushion, a guy with some experience, played a high level, third team All American, was coached by Jamila Die. our new defensive backs coach. So we feel good about that, but I think we still could certainly use some more veteran experience in the secondary, especially at cornerback. And it wouldn't hurt if we find a guy that we think can be an impact wide receiver. I would certainly take a long, hard look in that direction as well. Now, as far as Darian Kendrick goes, He is a guy that I would welcome on this team if, and this is a big if, if the background check works out, our coaches feel good about bringing this guy into our locker room. You'd be very careful about that. I don't know all the details surrounding his issues, his legal issues right now with a, with, uh, a, a potential gun charge, all those things. I don't know exactly what's going on behind the scenes. I haven't looked that close at it. I just know he's had some legal trouble since he left Clemson. And although Dabo didn't like say terrible things about him when he left, he also, if you read between the lines, some of his comments about Kendrick after he left, it's pretty clear that at the very least, this is a mutual parting of ways and they're not too torn up over it. So there are some, I I don't want to throw out like character concerns out there, because again, I don't know this guy personally, but there, there are some potential red flags. I think we can say that some potential red flags there. But if we do our homework, do the background check, and we feel good about bringing him into this program. And I don't know if that's the case, but if we feel good about it, I would welcome him here from, a, from an on-the-field standpoint because he does bring us that, that veteran presence. He gives us the one thing that we do not have at cornerback right now, and that is experience. We have talent. We have plenty of talent at cornerback, whether it's Kaylee Ringo, Nylon Green, Jalen Kimber, even Amir Speed. We have talent at that position, We just have basically no experience at all, which is well documented throughout this offseason. And the thing about Kendrick is it's not just experience but experience in the biggest moments that you can play in as a college football player and that does say a lot i think that's important that's not nothing that is important but in terms of his play on the field while he does give us experience and he's a talented player and know i would welcome him on the team i would love to have him on there he's a talented guy former five-star prospect former top 30 player overall nationally the 247 composite but his performance to this point hasn't quite lived up to that. His pro football focus grade last year was 69 overall in the season. It was pretty good at run support. He's about 72, was sub 70 in his pro football focus grade in coverage last year. And again, I got, I got, pro football focus is a tool to give you a general idea. I don't know exactly how they grade things and what their formula is. They're not overly transparent about that, at least not from what I've been able to see. But it's usually a pretty good measuring point, and he was average last year. And If you watched him in the playoffs against Ohio State, I mean, he got torched quite a few times, now, so did some of our DBs against the better offenses. So basically, if you're a DB, you're going to get torched this day and age. No matter how good you are, at some point, you're going to get burned because of the way offenses have just exploded in the past couple of years with new schemes or rules or favoring offenses, tempo, all those things but he did have his struggles at times against better competition. But he's physically gifted, he's talented, he has good speed, he changes direction, while sometimes a change of scenery, another coach in your ear, that can be all the difference in the world. So yes, again, considering our need at cornerback and his experience playing in the biggest moments you can play in in college football, and also being a guy with a lot of physical talent, he's a guy that, again, if he clears the background check and we feel good about it, I would bring him in. Now, as far as other names, I wish I could just roll off a bunch of names here for you guys to watch in the portal. But I think those names right now are still TBD. They are to be determined. Those potential impact guys are just, as far as I can tell, are not in the portal right now. Because you don't want to just throw a scholarship out of somebody and bring a dead body in here that's just on table scholarship and be dead weight and it's not ever going to contribute. You want to make sure you're bringing guys that can contribute if you're going to the transfer portal. But we usually have a good amount of attrition following spring practice. We we always have a lot of attrition right after the season's over. You hear a lot of announcements: this guy's entering the transfer portal, this guy's in the transfer portal, that guy. And then the guys that kind of stick it out—they're kind of on—they're on the fence. There, a lot of times they will enter the transfer portal after the spring when they try to, to go through spring drills, see if they can make a dent in the in the too deep or in the rotation, or maybe some of these guys that are starters at their at their school of choice but they just don't feel like their team is going to be all that good this season once you go through spring drills they just have a lot of hopes maybe they want to spend their final year or a couple years playing for more of a contender those kind of guys also sometimes enter the transfer portal after spring drill so I, I feel confident there's going to be some more attrition in the coming weeks I just don't know who those guys are going to be I would just be picking names out of a hat and I don't want to just throw names against the wall when I have no uh, no clue I'm just not going to do that now, as far as receiver, Mike Woods is a guy from Arkansas, wide receiver from Arkansas that hit the portal last week, and I would have loved for us to gain some traction there. I was like, oh, this is a guy. Let's look at him, but he was very quickly scooped up by Oklahoma, and look, if he's, if, if you're Mike Woods, I get why you go to Oklahoma and not a place like George. I don't even know if, if we reached out to him or, or how seriously he was considering us, if, if at all, but I mean, Oklahoma makes sense. I mean, if you want to be a receiver and put up numbers, you go to Oklahoma. That makes a lot of sense, but even though I don't have names for you right now, I'm watching very closely. If I see a name out there, I'll throw out here on the show. And I can assure you our coaches are watching even more closely than any of us. There's no doubt there.
2: You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements. Or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads.
1: well, if you listen to this show, you know I don't care about the NFL, but we know a lot of our listeners do, especially when it comes to the Georgia players. And Jeff is giving us an over under for this year's NFL draft, which starts Thursday.
0: I'm not an NFL guy either. I casually pay attention. Yes, Thursday, I want to say last year, I believe last year was a Friday because it was all COVID y, but this year I think it's going back to Thursday. I think it's in Cleveland? Maybe I, don't, I don't quote know. me on that. That's how know. casually I am I follow the NFL.
1: Alright, well Jeff asks, over under one and a half first round picks for UGA in the NFL draft this year.
0: Oh man. Over under one and a half first round draft picks for Georgia. Man, I hate to do this. I'm gonna take the under here. I am that that sucks. I would love to take the over here, but if I'm if I'm being objective. I'm going to take the under. I'm honestly not 100% sure that we're going to have any go in the first round. And as I said, look, I've made it clear from like the first days of the show, I'm not an NFL guy. I, I will pay attention to pro sports. I'm not a pro sports guy. You guys have been around for a long time. You know that. I, I pay attention because I just love sports. So, I mean, I'm a casual fan at best when it comes to that kind of thing. I don't really root for other teams. I'm a Georgia guy. That's who I root for. I don't have enough bandwidth to give any more love to any other teams out there, even though they're from the state of Georgia. I'm a Georgia guy. So I just kind of casually follow, and I just love football, and I'll certainly watch it, but I don't keep up with it nearly as closely as I do college athletics. There's no doubt there. But from what I've been able to understand, I do follow it, and what I've been able to understand, it seems like... Aziz, obviously Aziz ojalari is the, our best chance to be a first round draft pick. And for most of this draft cycle, the prevailing thought was that he would end up somewhere in the middle to late first round. And I still think there's a really good chance that he does end up in that range in the middle to late first round. But I've also seen a couple mock drafts here late in the process as we have entered draft day that have had him now going in the early second round. Now, we don't know. He's, he's in that range somewhere, probably late first round, early second round, There's still a very good chance he could get drafted in the first round, but he's our best chance to go in the first round. I am just honestly not sure if, even if Aziz does go in the first round, and I hope to God he does, he deserves it, and that'd be awesome for him, awesome for our program. Let's get all the first round draft picks that we can. It's a great thing to sell on the recruiting front but I don't really know who else would sneak into the first round. I think the, the obvious guy right behind him to be next draft, to be one of the two cornerbacks, whether it's Eric Stokes or Tyson Campbell. Eric Stokes really helps himself out putting up some big numbers in the 40-yard dash some really, really, really good times in the 4-3s, four four, one of them, a couple of them in the four twos actually. At our pro day uh, a month or so ago, now does he really run like a legit 4-2 when it's laser time? Eh, I don't know about that, but hey, all the other prospects are doing the same thing that Eric Stokes did. They're they're going with stopwatch time, 40s. and They're not out there with the lasers. There's no NFL combine this year. So it's all relative. But he put out some really good numbers that backed up his speed, which is always his best attribute at the college level. So I think he's got a really good shot. He's got some good tape out there. So I think he's got a shot to go in the early second round. I don't think Eric Stokes is going to be a first-round draft pick. Now, he might be one of those guys that just surprise you. Look, it takes one team. It takes one team to be mesmerized with those measurables, with with those numbers, with that 40-yard dash time. And like your tape, it takes one team to reach a little bit. But I think it would take a team reaching to take either Eric Stokes or Tyson Campbell in the first round. certainly possible. We've seen teams reach before, but I think it's far more likely that both Stokes and Campbell go in the early to mid second round range, maybe Campbell in the late second round. I think he'll probably be off the board before we get to the third round. So yeah, if I if I had to, if I was a betting man and I had to lay down some money on the over under here at one and a half first round draft picks for the Georgia Bulldogs in this 2021 NFL draft, as much as I hate to say it, being honest here, I would take the under if I was a betting man. I think Aziz is probably the only one that has a real shot to go in the first round.
1: Okay, last question. And we've had a lot of football talk today as usual. However, we're going to wrap up the show with a basketball question now that basically the entire roster from last year has been turned over. So Pat asks, with Severe Wheeler now in the transfer portal, can we just go ahead and admit that Tom Crean has tanked the basketball program and that we would have been better off keeping Mark Fox? like Juwan Parker said.
0: Dude, shots fired, Pat. Shots fired, man. And look, Pat, I totally get the frustration here. I completely get your frustration with the lack of wins on the court, the recruiting woes. Now the losses, the transfer portal. It's all kind of just stacking up here. It's really hard to find any light at the end of our basketball tunnel. But it, we're bringing Mark Fox in the equation here. I did see Jawan Parker tweet that out once Xavier wheeler hit the portal last week. But I would also say let's be careful with the revisionist history here as it relates to Mark Fox. Mark Fox did some good things, and he certainly brought stability to the program. But it was stability defined by perpetual mediocrity we were rarely bad. We really, even in our worst seasons, we weren't a bad team. We were at least competitive, but we were also rarely all that good. We were rarely good. I, I, on average, over nine seasons, I crunched numbers here, we were on average 18 and 14 overall, all right? We had two NCAA tournament bids in nine seasons, never got above a 10 seed in those two bids, did not win one NCAA tournament game. He had four seasons where we finished our overall f- record at the end of the year, was over five hundred. So that's less than half of his years here in Athens. Now he was never really ever as bad as the first couple of years of Tom Crean, but let's not go back in time and rewrite history and say that Mark Fox was something that he wasn't. He was a good coach, did some good things, graduated players, and and kept this program on track in terms of like a compliance standpoint. He was not cheating out there recruiting, like a lot of coaches are. And there's something to be said for that. I do value that and I do appreciate that. But at the end of the day, you got to win. And there are guys out there that do it the right way and win. There are guys that do it the wrong way and win too, but I don't think you have to do it the wrong way. You don't think you have to cut corners and necessarily cheat to win in college basketball. Mark Fox just never won enough, right? I, I think moving on from him was absolutely the right move, now, it's also very possible we did not hire the right guy to replace him, but I am not going to go back in history and fault our athletic director, fault Greg McGarity for making a move to try to improve the program. Honestly, he should have made a move earlier than that. You know, I, I, I've gone on record saying I think it's probably fair to give Tom Crean another year, and you know at, at one point it was fair to give mark fox another year because he had shown some progress and we were stable and he'd done some good things he's a good guy was running on a good program but nine years nine years to his late tournament bids like come on like yeah he, he graduated guys brought that level of stability but wallowing in mediocrity for nine years that should not be an option i do not care about our lack of basketball history and tradition you're never going to be able to build any kind of basketball tradition if you go nine years in this day and age without really any dividends at all. Like two tournament bursts, two 10 seats, zero NCAA tournament wins. That should not be acceptable for any program. It shouldn't be, including ours. Now, I will say this for, for Fox. We did not see the attrition like we have under Tom Crean. That's certainly been concerning the past couple of years. But as to that attrition, I've said this before, I'll say it again, I just don't think that is unique to Tom Crean. I know we're, a lot of people are frustrated with Tom Crean, so we can use that as kind of a hammer to bash him with. Like, this is another thing to throw on top of his grave. Like, this guy just can't do anything right. And, all, and oh, by the way, all of our best players are transferring now, and it's all his fault. He sucks. He's terrible. He has no redeeming qualities. I know it's easy to do that. It's very tempting. And, and he is a strange dude. He is. That might not be connecting with his players. That certainly very well could be the case. But the transfer portal has changed the sport. This is not just a Tom Crean thing. This is happening all over the landscape of college basketball. Let's just look at the SEC, for example. Texas A&M has had nine guys leave their program already uh, from last year. Florida has had potentially seven guys. If Colin Castleton stays in the NBA draft, I think there's a chance that he might. It is the rule now. This is just what college basketball is. I don't love it, I don't like it at all, but it is what it is at this point. And the most successful coaches are going to be the ones who can most successfully manage the transfer portal. And Tom Green has not shown that prior to this year, but I actually kind of like what he's doing in terms of the guys he's bringing in from the transfer portal this season. Last year, we completely whiffed in the portal. We brought in a bunch of guys outside of maybe Kyer that just really couldn't do much to help us. Andrew Garcia tried his best. He was a 6'6 guy essentially being asked to play the five. And that's just not going to work out very well in the SEC. But context or not with the portal losing a guy like severe wheeler i and this is a, i know you're a source of frustration pat losing a guy like wheeler that does hurt i am not going to make any excuses for that that hurts wheeler has plenty of flaws it's like gets strange the people i talk to it's like Half and half. Half of them like, oh man, we're not going to miss that guy at all. Good rinse. The other half like, man, like now what are we going to do? We have no chance next year without Severe. So it's it's kind of interesting how he's perceived by the fan base. It kind of just depends on your perspective there. But in reality, Severe has plenty of flaws. The guy can't shoot. The dude shot 22% from three last year, shot under 40% from the field in general. He cannot shoot. That's a problem. In modern college basketball, at any level of basketball, that is a problem, right? So he can't shoot. He turns the ball over far too much. He's small, so he he's a liability defensively. He plays hard, but he's still a liability out there defensively. So plenty of flaws. I get that. But on the flip side. I would also argue he was the engine to this offense, and he, as flawed as he was in areas, he did do several things very well. Dribble penetration was elite. He did a great job creating for teammates. problem last year was when you create for teammates, we just have enough of them that can actually knock down shots consistently. And, and although he's small offensively, he does do well finishing oversize, can finish at the rim really well for a guy his size, going against some of the trees there in the middle of the SEC. But I, I feel like we've done a really good job replacing a guy like Tamani Kamara. Tamani Kamara is the other guy that we lost that was part of what well, I would classify as the big three, with Severe Wheeler, Kamara, and Katie Johnson. I went to the offseason and say, hey, I don't care who transfers as long as it's not one of those three. And now we've got two of those guys down, and we're hanging on with Katie Johnson. Hopefully, he sticks around. But I wasn't necessarily torn up when Kamara left. I thought I felt like he was probably the least important of those big three, although I think he has a, a very high potential. I think he was the one that's most replaceable. And I think we've done a really good job replacing Camargas. He was not a finished product. He's got a lot of room to grow. Very, very high ceiling, but he is still very raw. He's grown, but he's still raw. And getting guys like Jalen Ingram from FAU, Jabri Rahim, former Top 50 recruit from Virginia, those are guys that can play that position and do what Kamara did and probably do it better. I mean, J. Ingram shot over 40% from three last year. Kamara couldn't even touch 30%. So those are guys that I think potentially, honestly, at least as far as next year, I'm not saying they have as high a long-term ceilings as Kamara, but as for what we're going to be next year, I think Ingram and Abdur Rahim, I think they might be an upgrade over Kamara. I think there's a really good chance that's going to be the case. And then we added a much-needed shooter in Noah Bauman from USC. Defense is going to be an issue with him. That was, a def- that was an issue for him at times at USC last year, one of the reasons he could not see the court or stay on the court for as long as, as I'm sure he would have liked to have been, one of the reasons he transferred. But the Duke can flat-out shoot it as can Jalen Ingram, as I mentioned, the guy from FAU. Now, if we would have kept Wheeler, I feel confident saying that we have upgraded the, the roster pretty significantly and address some of our biggest deficiencies with a little bit of size with some guys that can shoot the basketball. But now with Wheeler gone, I don't know as much. <laughs> we do have a big hole at point guard now. It's just, it just sucks, man. This is a very Georgia thing. Like we finally got the guys that we needed around Wheeler that he could create for and guys could knock down shots. But now that engine is gone. Now Wheeler's gone. So we have to find an answer there. And I just don't know who the answer is going to be there. That That is a concern for me. I, I just don't know. I mean, Wheeler was flawed, but man, like he could run a team. And I just don't know at this point who that guy's going to be. Do we try to move KD to point guard? Because I mean, look, KD is not going to be a shooting guard in the NBA. He's just not going to be. He doesn't have. He's not tall enough. He's thick, but he's not tall enough. So maybe we try to move him there, have him run the team, but I kind of like him off the ball. I don't know. There's a, lot of, there's a lot up in the air there when it comes to the point guard positions where we kind of just have to wait and see there. But bottom line is, I know that you're frustrated, Pat. And I know a lot of people are, and I have certainly been frustrated throughout the past couple years with Tom Crean and some of the things that I've seen. But I've said this before, I'll say it again. I'm just not ready to 100% give up on Cream. all right? And look, the guy is going to be our coach next year. He's not going anywhere at this point. He's going to be here one more year. So let's get behind him, give the guy another shot. But I'll also say this, give him his fourth year. He's got a track record of building programs. Fourth year has kind of been a jump for him, but he needs to put up or shut up next season. It is a put up or shut up season for him. If we have another year like this, and we don't really see significant improvement, then I I think it's going to be at that, at that point, it'll be time to move on. But time will tell. We'll see. I, I, I like some of the things he's done with the transfer portal. We just got to figure out an answer to point guard. And if we do, I don't know if we will, but if we do, then I think we can actually be a, a fair amount better next year and maybe make a run towards potentially being a bubble team and maybe sneak away into the tournament. And that would obviously be significant pro- progress coming off his first couple years here in Athens. But all right, guys, that does it for us today here on the Glory UGA podcast. I will be back later on this week. Curtis uh, is finals week for him, man. So actually next two weeks or finals which we're going to try to get him back on next week but we're giving him the week off so he can focus on the finals that's more important for him right now but I will be back with you guys n- later on this week I believe what we're going to be doing is taking a look at each position on the field for both the Georgia Bulldogs and the Clemson Tigers and talking about who has the edge at each position because apparently there was I didn't actually read this article but I've got I've got this from a couple different people there was an article that came out from a Clemson publication a homer site I believe it was, um, after G-Day, and they basically gave Clemson the edge at every single position on the field, which is a little excessive. So I will have my response to that later on this week because we've got a lot of interest, a lot of conversation about that on social media. So check back in later on this week, guys. I'll have that for you. But thanks for listening. You know we love you guys. For Charlie, I'm Tyler, and as always, Go dogs.